Growing up as an Air Force kid had a lot of benefits for me. Um, I got to see a lot of the country. I got to travel overseas. So I had a broader sense of culture and society kind of as a whole. And it also helped me to appreciate both the sacrifices that my, uh, both my dads made and also that my family made to serve our country. But it also had a lot of drawbacks. A few of them was that I had to wake up at an unbearable time each morning during the school year because my dad worked at 6 a.m., so he would get us up at 5. Um, and then the biggest drawback was that um, we, my brother and I basically had to be picked up and moved every three to four years. So we had to leave our school. We had to leave our friends, the family that we might have had around then. And these weren't just like small moves. They, they, these weren't just moves that were moves down the street into a bigger house. These were either cross-country moves or moves overseas. So those were hard for obvious reasons, but my brother... Um, and I, picking up and moving away from the friends that we had, absolutely pained us. So as our family was gearing up for these moves, um, I found myself leaning into conversations that my brother or my mom and dad were having about the new places that we're going to be moving to. They would talk about things like, what city were we moving to? Or would we live on base or off of base? And how big was the school? And, and for my mom, the biggest kicker for her was, is it cold where we're moving because she hates the cold? And now the joke is on her because uh, her and my dad retired now in Minnesota, and you know the reputation that Minnesota has for being cold. So moving was always hard for me, and I think I used to take it personally, you know? I would always get sad about it before we would go. The thought of leaving my friends really hurt me, but I found myself that listening to the stories about the uh, truth of the new places that we would move uh, would help me have hope for the future. And maybe for you, you haven't had to pick up and move every three to four years like I did. And maybe unlike me, you've had lifelong friends and lifelong friendships, but I'd venture a guess to say that there has been a significant moment in your life when you've had to grasp onto the hope of the future to get you through your present. So the book that we're in this morning has a lot to say about hope, and more specifically, it has a lot of truths about the hope that we can grasp onto. So let's look to the authority of Scripture this morning to help us understand this great hope that we have. Joel chapter 2, we're going to be in uh, a few verses here. The first one is verses 18 through 21. We're going to be reading from the ESV, and then we'll flip to uh, just down the page a little bit to verses 25 through 29. Let's read it, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations." I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul uh, smell of him will rise for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice for the Lord has done great things. Picking up in verse 25. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer and cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dwelt, uh, dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. 
and my people shall never be put to shame. The Lord will pour out his spirit, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. The book of Joel is a fascinating book in the Bible. It's a short book, and it's only three chapters long, but it's written absolutely beautifully. Beautifully, It's poetic, and it's a collection of these poems, both powerful and puzzling, for a few reasons. And one of the reasons is because we don't know exactly the time that this book was written. The prophet Joel is the author of this book, obviously, and he doesn't say anywhere in these three chapters of what time period it is. He only gives us a handful of these clues about what time period it is. Another reason it's puzzling is because Joel doesn't point out any particular sin of the uh, nation of Israel. And scholars believe the reason is, is because like you and I, the reader, we have been reading the other prophetic books. Joel was a student of the word. And so he's assuming that maybe we've already picked up on it. And to that point, he already has a knowledge of those other books of scripture, including many other uh, books of the prophets and also the book of Exodus because he quotes them in this book of Joel. So this proves that he was a student of the word. He immersed himself in the scriptures. He loved them. He loved the writings of his Lord. And so it, make them, it helped him make sense of the tragedy that took place before, but it also gave him great hope for the future that was in front of him. So this morning, we're going to take a dive into Joel chapter 2, and we're going to examine three truths about the character of our God of hope and also how hope interacts with us. So for the first point this morning, our hope responds. We're going to be looking at verses 18 and 19 of Joel chapter 2. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. So in verse 18 here, God is responding, and he's responding to a genuinely repentant people, genuine hearts that are now repentant. You see, just prior to this Joel, he was calling for his people to repent of their rebellion. And again, we don't know the specifically what sin or specific rebellion that they were partaking in, but it's obviously grievous enough, right, that they needed to repent. And Joel calls them to, to turn away from their sin and turn back to God. So let's look just back uh, a tad bit, and we're going to read verses 12 and 13 to see what God was saying to his people through the prophet Joel. Verse 12, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, he says, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious, for he is merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Did you catch that? Did you hear what he said? He said, what was God calling him to rend or them to rend? Not their garments, but their hearts. And it's the heart that matters most to God. Amen? It's the heart that matters the most to God and not the outward appearance of man. 
You see, back during biblical times, it was customary for someone who was maybe grieving a death or facing some tragedy in their life to rend their garments. And that was essentially to take their tunic or take their robe and tear it into two pieces. Basically, this was an outward sign, an outward symbol of what was taking place in their hearts. And they would rend their garments when this would happen so that they could show the people around them what was taking place in their lives. So the rending of their garments was a symbol. And God here wasn't looking for a symbol, but he was rather looking for a genuine, broken-hearted people. And what's a genuine, broken heart look like? Maybe you're asking that question. What does a genuine, broken heart look like? Well, a good litmus test for that is whether we're more sorry about the consequences of our sin or about the fact that we actually broke our holy God's heart. The latter is evidence of true repentance. You guys might remember that last Sunday, if you were here, that Pastor David taught us that sin isn't breaking God's rules, but rather what? Sin is breaking God's heart. That's right. They were constantly turning away from God. They were breaking his heart. They were breaking his heart in disobedience, in rebellion, and in clear violation of the covenant that was established. So here now in verses 18, where we are now, it shows God here responding to the people that had their hearts really genuinely broken. They were rending their hearts in two. And so some scholars believe that now at this time that Israel had already come together in response and that they came together for a national service of prayer and fasting and lamenting. And this is a a time where the priests would basically offer up public prayers to God on behalf of the rebellious people. And so here, out of grace and out of mercy and out of steadfast love for his people, God really did have pity on them. He wanted to have pity on them. He said he would send them grain, wine, and oil, and that his people would be satisfied after that. And why is this stuff about food and wine significant? Because during this time of Joel's writing, Locusts were wreaking havoc on the land and around Israel. The locusts during this time weren't just there a day or two, but scholars believe that these locusts camped out for a significant amount of time, long enough that they wiped out all of the crops, all of the food supplies. So God's people here, they're broken in their sin. They're hungry, they're tired, they're hopeless, but they found hope for the future in God's response. And so we see here that God's response is always on time, but it took the starving of this nation, the desolation of their land for Israel to turn back to their God, turn back in repentance and turn and look to him. And it was on God's time. The timing of God's response is perfect because his plan is perfect. He knows when to respond in our lives. God's plan for us is always for our good. It's always for our benefit and for others' benefits, and it's never to harm us. God's very nature is kind. So when you're faced with hardship or trial, friends, I want you to know that God's response to you is never to damage you. It's never punitive, but rather it's for our good, it's for our growth, and it's for our benefit. So how else does God respond to us? Well, through the scripture, we know that he responds to prayer. God responds to the prayers of his people, but not just his people. God responds to the prayer of Christ on your behalf. He responds to the prayers of the Spirit on your behalf because God intercedes on your behalf. When you don't know what to pray, God does. He prays on your behalf. So he responds to prayers 
But since our God is a just God, God responds also to the injustices around us. We know what's happening in our world. We know what's taking place. And God knows way far more than what we know. And he responds to the injustices in and around our world. He also responds by moving on the body of Christ to respond and to accomplish his mission, right? And for a matter of clarification, I want you to know this. God responds to us, not because of who we are, but rather for whose we are. Let me say that again. God responds to us, not because of who we are, but rather for whose we are. And one final thought on this point. How can we be sure that the response we're receiving from God is from him? Well, by the simple fact that if it aligns with the word of God, it's definitely a response from God because God is faithful to his word. Search the scriptures. He keeps his promises. Our hope responds. Point number two, our hope also restores. Our hope restores. We're gonna be looking to verses 25 and 26 in Joel chapter two. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. One of the ways that our God interacts with us and gives us hope is by restoring our lives, like he did for Israel by promising them provision in their lack. These people were starving. They had nothing. The locusts took everything. They stole everything from the Israelites. And so how does, how does this connect with us? How does God interact with us in this way? Well, for one, our God doesn't sit idle. He doesn't sit idle. When we're going through the stuff of life, he is actually actively at work in our lives and is intimately involved with us even to the smallest details. We know this because the scriptures say so. So despite our sin, despite our rebellion, God restores us because he promises us provision and protection for his people. He's a forgiving God and he loves us. The point of restoration in this book of Joel is bolstered by the use of the story of the locusts in these chapters. It's really prevalent in this, uh, in this book. The locusts here literally wipe out everything that the Israelites have. The land is stripped, it's barren, because all the crops have been uh, stripped of anything that they can eat or even buy. Their economy was riding on this as well. So their economy is in shambles, their livelihood is no more because they have no more means of income, right? They lived in an agrarian society, as Pastor David has talked about before. Their circumstances were bleak. They had no hope. And to get a true sense of the conditions the locusts were causing here, think of the plagues in Egypt in Exodus, and you'll have a good idea what's happening here. So these locusts were bad news. And I want to read for you, just real quick, an excerpt from National Geographic that I found about um, the desert locust. It says, a desert locust is notorious. Found in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia, they inhabit some 60 countries and can cover one-fifth of Earth's land surface. Desert locust plagues may threaten the economic livelihood of one-tenth of the world's humans. A desert locust swarm can be 460 square miles in size and pack between 40 and 80 million locusts into less than one half of a square mile. Each locust can eat its weight in plants each day, so a swarm of such size would eat 423 million pounds of plants every day. 
Like the individual animals within them, locust swarms are typically in motion and can cover vast distances. Listen to this. In 1954, a swarm flew from Northwest Africa to Great Britain, and in 1988, another made lengthy trek from West Africa to the Caribbean. It's no wonder why Joel compares locusts here to an unstoppable army in the beginning of chapter two. These locusts destroyed everything in their sight, literally ruined their whole lives. And Israel here was broken and in need of hope, and God promises them that he will restore everything to them that the locusts destroyed. He's going to provide for them. He's going to restore their lives. When I was in Bible college, I took a month-long trip to Germany to visit my parents overseas for Christmas break. And uh, I was over there. I was connected to Facebook already at that time. And I remember receiving a message from a buddy of mine who worked in the on-campus security department with me. He was a coworker of mine. And uh, he, he messages me. I think there was messenger already on there back then, or maybe he maybe posted on my wall. But in any event, he sent me a message, and he literally said these words. He said, hey, Foster, I know you're in Germany, and there's not much you can do, but I just want to let you know that your car got broken into. They stole your stereo and CDs, and I was shocked. First off, I felt helpless, and then that helplessness turned to anger, and then that anger again turned to hopelessness because there was literally nothing that I could do. I was thousands of miles away in Germany, and I felt like I had just been robbed. I felt like I got everything stripped from me. My stereo was taken, my speakers were taken, my CD deck was taken, and all of my CDs all of my precious, if you know me, all my precious Shane and Shane CDs were taken from me. It was stripped from me. They're my favorite Christian musicians. And so what God was doing here in the midst of his people was promising them that he'd compensate them from the harvests that the locust evasions had destroyed and that they would have plenty to eat. And for me, the insurance company compensated me for my new car window, for my stereo, for my speakers, and for my Shane and Shane CDs. So you can see how God worked that out for me. He provides, but... What God promises to restore isn't just the physical things of your life. They're not just the tangible items of your life. They're not just your finances. But God is worried about our spiritual health as well, right? He wants us to be spiritually well off. He restores that as well. God is into the soul restoring business, and he'll restore your soul. So I want to ask you a question this morning. Are you feeling wounded? Are you feeling lonely? Are you feeling tired? I want you to know this morning, God will restore you. Are you frustrated? Are you angry? Do you feel numb, maybe desensitized? I want you to know, God will restore you. Is your faith waning and are you losing hope? Do you feel like you're maybe walking a thin line, like maybe everything will break beneath you? I want you to know, God will restore you. God delights in restoring our souls. In Psalm 22 and 23, this uh, part of scripture captures soul restoration in the most perfect way, and I want you to see this for yourselves. Check out Psalm uh, chapter 22, verses one and two. This is David writing. He says this, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far when I groan for a help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. Now, let's read the first three verses of Psalm 23. Just the next chapter, he says this. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows.
goes on to say, he leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right past, bringing honor to his name. What a transformation here. Just in one chapter, something transforms. And David's heart level trust and faith changes. In Psalm 22, David feels abandoned by an unresponsive God. And then just in one chapter, in Psalm 23, David feels shepherded again by an attentive God, a God who pays attention to him. In Psalm 22, David's soul is restless. He's facing agony. And in Psalm 23, David's soul is clearly restored with what? With trust for his God. He knows his Lord is shepherding him here with true care. And so friends, I want to ask you this. What are you trusting God with this morning to restore for you? What is it you're looking for in restoration? I want you to know the truth that our hope restores us. Our God of hope restores us. Point number three this morning is our hope resides. Our hope resides. We're going to be looking to, again, Joel chapter 2, but this time verses 27 through 29. Let's read it. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no one else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. The Lord will pour out his spirit and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So we saw how God restores us in point number two by promising to protect, right? But to also to provide for us. But here, God promises to reside with us by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And here throughout the Old Testament, the spirit was primarily seen as an instrument, right? Or even an expression of God's awesome power. But the Spirit was also seen as somebody who only visited certain individuals like the kings back then or the leaders or even the priests back then. The Spirit would show up in their lives and then they would communicate and uh, do great wonders in and around them. So, and in verse 3 here, we read and we see how deeply the people of the Old Testament, they longed for, they yearned for the precious, precious presence of the Holy Spirit and they see how that longing would finally be fulfilled, right? In the Old Testament, God's presence resided in a place called the tabernacle, in the most holy of holies, which was essentially just a room in a tent because the Israelites, they were kind of a nomad nation back then. They were wandering the desert. They basically set up their tent and brought in the Ark of the Covenant, and, and there the presence of the Lord resided. And then they would tear down their tent and move. So they brought with them the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. But now in the New Testament, and as New Testament people, which we are together, God doesn't reside in a tabernacle no more. He doesn't just live in a room somewhere or in a building, but he resides where? He resides in our lives by living in our hearts. And that's the Holy Spirit of God. He resides in each one of us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, it says, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? 
And God promised to pour out his spirit on all men. And we see that the fulfillment of this prophecy here in Joel comes to fruition in Acts chapter 2 in the New Testament. God blesses his people by pouring out his spirit in a place called the upper room, which was the kind of upper chambers of a, of a home for the first time. And God did that for a specific reason. And he did that to empower us, to empower his people to expand his church and to accomplish the mission of God, which is to go and make disciples. And God was revealing the spirit of God, right? Fully, who dwells with all who believe in Jesus, including men and women, young and old. God provides the spirit for the insider and outsider as well. And God pours out his spirit on everyone who trusts in and loves Jesus. I know that we just got done doing a four-week series on the Holy Spirit, but I trust, you know, with that, that we're all caught up on the content and listening to those sermons. But just as a reminder, I want to tell you that there, uh, the role of the Spirit is twofold, mainly twofold. And one of the roles is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and also to reveal Jesus to our hearts. But we also know that the Holy Spirit comforts us. He transforms us. He assures us, and like I said before, he intercedes for us. He prays on our behalf, and he gives gifts to each of us. In short, the Holy Spirit dwells in us to empower us for service. And tonight is our July 1st uh, Sunday, as you heard in the announcement video. We're going to be meeting here from 6 p.m. to 7.15-ish. And here in the sanctuary, we're going to meet with the Holy Spirit tonight. We're going to take time tonight to seek the Holy Spirit for his presence and for his gifts. And I want to encourage you to come out. If you're a lover of Jesus, if you've known Jesus for a week, if you've known Jesus for 50 years, we want to invite you here tonight because we're going to go after the Holy Spirit tonight. We're going to be in his presence and we're going to seek the Spirit for his gifts and what he wants to say and do in and through our lives. We also want to seek uh, the Spirit to empower you by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So we believe that this baptism is for everyone who trusts in Jesus, who loves Jesus, to empower us and to partner with him to go and make disciples for the glory of our God and the good of our community. So uh, consider this my official invitation to you to come out tonight at 6 p.m. So here we see that our hope resides. And where does he reside? Where does the Spirit of God reside? Well, like Joel said, in the midst of his people by residing in us. What does this mean? Well, it means that our one true hope, the creator and rescuer of our souls, resides within us. The scriptures say in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, it says this. The spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same spirit living within you. Our God knows just what we need to accomplish his mission. Our hope resides and he resides in us. So as we consider hope this morning, how hope responds, how hope restores, and how hope resides, let's strive to remember together that God just doesn't give us grain and he doesn't just give us wine and oil to satisfy us, no. He gave himself fully to you and for you and for his glory. And this is what ultimately gives us hope for the future. Hope in and of itself is meaningless 
without action. It's in vain. There's nothing to it. But Jesus acted by giving us not just a portion of himself, not just a slice or a piece of himself, he gave himself fully and entirely. Jesus came to satisfy the demands of a holy God, but also to satisfy our hungry and our thirsty hearts. I want you to know this morning, this, this truth this morning, friends, that the ways of this world and the things of the world will never truly satisfy you. They will never be enough, but Jesus will be enough, and he is enough. God quenched the true thirst of our souls by pouring out the life of his son like a drink, and it didn't cost us a thing, but it cost, but it cost God everything. It cost him everything, and that's how much you mean to this holy God. God gave up everything to purchase you back. When you felt forsaken, remember that Jesus was truly forsaked by his father. He was mocked by men and then his hands and his feet were pierced for your sake. And God allowed this to happen so that you could be led through these troubled times. So that you could be led through your hardships and through your trials. And God did this to give you true hope for the future. A future that's filled with goodness and with mercy. Our God is a God of love and of grace and of mercy. He poured out and gave up everything for you. Church leaders, if you can please come up to prepare the communion elements. As we start preparing our hearts this morning to come to the communion table, I'd like to um, just state that uh, we serve open communion here at Trinity, and that means that you don't need to be a member here of this church. If you're a lover of Jesus, if you have trusted Jesus with your life, these communion elements are open for you. We also have some gluten-free options up here, some crackers, if you need that. But we're going to seek God. We're going to remember Christ now at the communion table.